we have a very familiar text today, and one that, as I was speaking with Pastor Jeremy this morning, I said, how do you cover it all? And uh, the answer is, you don't. Uh, there's a lot here. So fortunately, um, there will be, I hope, many more Sundays ahead, many more Palm Sundays, where we can join in with this text and explore its riches, because its riches are immense. Before we get to the reading of the text, I'd like to put two questions in your mind uh, that you think about and reflect upon as we read the text. First of all, what does the story that we're about to read tell me about Jesus? Or to put it simply, what does it tell me about his identity? Who does Jesus reveal himself to be? Secondly, I want you to consider Jesus' identity and what that means in your life this morning. The doctrine of Christ is not a dry theological doctrine for the head. It is a wondrous doctrine that should lead us to exalting the Lord, to blessing his name, and to be with those on the street that cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Either way, whether we are in the crowd that will eventually say crucify him or those that will bless his name, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, will have a huge effect on your life here and now. No matter how we answer that question, who is Jesus? Let us turn to the text, Matthew 21. It's on page 8 in your worship guide. We'll be looking at the first 17 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This too is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, on that day when you entered into Jerusalem, greeted with sounds of Hosanna, blessed are you. Lord, you knew what laid ahead. You knew where the week would end, yet you did that for us. Show us yourself this morning in the text. Be with my mouth as I bring your word to your people. Bless this preaching of your word through your spirit. For it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who was this man? Have you ever noticed how repeatedly that question comes up in the New Testament? On one occasion, Jesus himself asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Jesus' identity is paramount in the New Testament. On another occasion, the disciples are asking, What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And on another occasion, the religious leaders come to him and say, Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who was Jesus? The world has struggled to answer that question for almost a little over 2,000 years. They've struggled since the first century. And it is the most important question that we can answer as individuals or as the church. A wrong answer to that question led ultimately to the crucifixion. Was Jesus just a role model? A great moral teacher? I dare say many churches today preach, do what Jesus did, but not who Jesus was. Was Jesus a failed Messiah? Many Jews then and today will still answer the question, Jesus was just another failure. Or, is he the Lord of glory who will return someday to judge the living and the dead? Is he God in flesh? Why did the winds obey him? When the disciples were so shook, it's because when Jesus spoke, the creation heard the voice of its creator. Why did Jesus answer the Pharisees who questioned him, who do you think you are? Why did he answer them? Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said these things, did these things, he backed up his words. 
Jesus would go about the regions of Galilee, exercising demons, healing every manner of disease, teaching and forgiving sins in plain sight. Jesus' life and ministry showed him to be the Christ, the Son of God, to bring the gospel to bear, to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And we see through his healing, his exorcism, his teaching, all that he did, we see the first fruits of God's kingdom coming to bear on earth. Jesus showed himself to be God himself, wrapped in flesh. But what about those passages in the Bible that seem to contradict this narrative? There are certainly those passages which suggest that Jesus is human, that have nothing to do with deity. He was born of a virgin. He's born as a human. He suffered. He died. Does the Bible contradict itself? No. The Bible shows us through Jesus' actions and speech the central truth of who he is. Jesus is the one God of the universe wrapped in flesh, real human flesh. Jesus had a mind. He grew up. He learned to speak from his earthly parents. He probably learned his father's trade. He felt pain. He felt emotions, joy and sorrow. Jesus was a real human being, just like you or me, except without sin. If this seems difficult to understand, you're in good company. How does the deity of God and humanity meet in Christ? First off, it's a mystery. And we will never fully grasp this truth and its meaning of what it is for God to be truly, for Jesus to be truly God and truly man. John Calvin's statement about the finite finite not being able to understand the infinite is appropriate here. As the early church fathers pondered the scriptures and the apostles teaching, it took centuries for them to craft the grammar and the statements we have, have in our great creeds about Christ. It's complicated. How do we understand this? And today, some 2000 years later, We are the recipients of 2,000 years of church history where people have been wrestling with the identity of Jesus. Some of them good thoughts and some not so good. So I have a little history lesson this morning. I promise it's short. But I think it will help elucidate how the church came to understand Christ. The first four ecumenical church councils all dealt with the nature of God and Jesus Christ. In 325, the Council of Nicaea established orthodoxy by emphasizing the oneness of God. We get that great Nicene creed from that council. The original creed in the section concerning the Father and Christ said this, We believe in one God, the Father, all-sovereign, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, of one substance with the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, 
of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, things in heaven and things on the earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was made flesh and became man, suffered and rose on the third day, ascended into the heavens and is coming to judge the living and the dead. And the Holy Spirit, it goes on. This is one of the most beautiful statements, in my opinion, outside of Scripture. The beauty of Christ, of one substance with the Father. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. The one who made heaven and earth. This is the best our words can come up with outside of Scripture. How do we understand this? We confess it as a mystery, but it is a mystery that is so important for our lives and for our salvation. Who is Christ? Why was he both God and man? And why is this important to us? I hope that we can answer that question as we go. From the oneness of God in Christ, the second council in Constantinople in 381 would emphasize God's threeness, that the scriptures reveal him to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In 431, the council at Ephesus would emphasize the oneness of Christ, that Christ is not divided, that there is one Christ. And the council of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, depending on your preference, from 451 would clarify the two-ness of Christ. One Jesus with two natures, who was truly divine and truly human. The Chalcedonian Creed would emphasize that Christ was not only of one substance with the Father or had the nature of the Father and truly God, but that he was truly human, accepting sin. Rather than explain the mystery, Chalcedon preserved it. Jesus is truly and completely God. He is truly and completely human. And that is how the scriptures speak. And that's a glimpse of what we're going to get today in our text. So let's turn there now. The first thing I want us to notice as we look at the text are the four groups of people that respond to the question of Jesus' identity. The first group responding to Jesus is the crowd. We see them in verse 8, where we read, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is receiving the royal treatment. He's receiving the treatment that was reserved for kings or great warriors returning to the city from battle. The messianic cries of Hosanna or Hosianna in Hebrew came loudly from the the people. The meaning is simply, save us, rescue us. It's not unlike the common expression heard in the enthronement in England of a king or queen. God save the king. It's an expression like that, except it's referential that the king, may he be saved, but may he save and rescue us. The meaning of Hosanna to simply save and rescue is key. Jesus is recognized by the crowd as the son of David, 
the Savior and Anointed One. It's an incredible moment in Jesus' life. Save us, come the cries. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On the surface, the crowd seems to get it. They seem to be recognizing Jesus for who he is, the king of glory come to earth. Or at least the Messiah in the line and lineage of David. The only problem is that we know where the story ends. That by the end of the week, this is the crowd that will be yelling, crucify him. We want Barabbas. May his blood be upon our children, upon us and our children. While the crowd seemed to get it on the surface, it was only skin deep. We know that they were ultimately expecting a different kind of Messiah. We can look at the response of the Jews in Jesus' time and also, sadly, even in our own time. It is commonly and was commonly thought that the Messiah would be a warrior king who would save Israel from all her oppressors and bring them freedom. Messiah would reign as an earthly king and usher in a new era of prosperity for Israel. The crowd sought someone like the hammer of God who had come before Christ. His name was Judas Maccabeus. He was a man who some 150 or so years before Jesus had ridden into battle for the city. He drove out the Seleucids and Gentiles and reclaimed Jerusalem. Upon entering the city, Judas Maccabeus moved to take back and purify the temple. The temple had been profaned. Pigs had been slaughtered in the temple of God. Judas Maccabeus drove out the heathens, took back the temple. And every year, Jews will celebrate Hanukkah, which is a remembrance of this time and this period. Judas Maccabeus fit the expectation of what people were expecting from the Messiah. Many, in fact, in Judas's own lifetime had thought he might be the Messiah. But what Israel and what we fail to realize so often is that our greatest enemy is not here in the world. It's not some government tyranny. It's not some foreign power. It's not poverty. But our greatest enemy is sin. And the real Messiah's kingdom was coming initially as a spiritual kingdom to overthrow the kingdom of darkness because that was Israel and our greatest need. Jesus' messianic reign and salvation is still our greatest need in this world. We should still be shouting the Hosanna, save me from my sin. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In their ignorance, the Jews in Jesus' time, and unfortunately many today, were blinded by the Old Testament prophecies about who Messiah would be, the suffering servant of Isaiah, come to redeem his people. They could not see their greatest need, a savior from sin. When the second group of people emerges in our story today, we read in verse 10, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus 
from Nazareth of Galilee. The second group seemed to not know what was going on. They were not in the crowd, but on the periphery. And they wanted to know, what's all this about? What's all the commotion? What's being stirred up this morning? They didn't know Jesus, and they sought an answer from the crowd. And the answer was not, he is God. Not he is king, or even Messiah, but that he was a prophet from Nazareth. And I have to say, reading this text, I was wondering if many of them, like Nathaniel, at the beginning of John's gospel, I wonder how many of them thought, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Both of these first two groups missed the mark on the true identity of Jesus. He was a prophet, but he was also our priest and king. He was more than their earthly expectation of a prophet and a Messiah. How many today still miss the Messiah because they do not see the connection of Jesus and the prophecies of the Old Testament? How many today miss Jesus by just going along with the crowd's general consensus and view? How many of us are so blinded by our sin, by the world, that we don't see the Christ that we need as our Savior, who is the King. The third group of people I want us to see in this story is the religious folks, the religious leaders in the temple. In verse 14 we read, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, and have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. The teachers of the law in the temple missed the mark. The religious leaders had heard Jesus' teaching throughout his ministry. We see that and read that in the Gospels. They saw the wonders. They had heard about the miracles and had even seen some with their own eyes. In fact, they were observing it in front of them. Their response to Jesus is simply saying, Shut these people up. In Luke's telling of the triumphal entry, he adds this little detail to the story. That if Jesus were to shut them up, that even the rocks would cry out. All of creation is groaning under sin and desirous of rescue and redemption. And even the rocks could not be silent in the presence of their king. With the hardness of heart... This group of religious folks refused to see what was right in front of him. Today, we have the word of God, full, complete, and sufficient. His spirit comes to teach us. And we have the witness of the church presently and for 2,000 years. Through storm and stress, the church has survived And it is strong. 
From the outside, it may look weak and battered. But through heresies, liars, tyranny of popes and false teachers, Christ has preserved her church and the gates of hell have not and will not reign against the church. Think about what God has done in his word and what he is doing through simple word and sacrament ministry in the church. Heaven is being stormed and hell is being overthrown every Sunday morning in word and sacrament ministry. That's what's promised in the word. The fourth group we see is the blind and the lame who in verse 14 came to Jesus. They came in humility to be healed. Did this group recognize him as the Messiah or the King? We don't know. We don't know if they had their theology right, but they knew one thing about Jesus, that he had healed others and he could heal them. Through their simple and perhaps even imperfect faith, they sought out the one person who could heal and save. In a very simple sense, that's what we are called to do. We may not suffer from actual blindness, but all of us prior to coming to Christ suffer from spiritual blindness. And I feel personally that every day I need my eyesight renewed. Christ is the one who can come even with an imperfect faith, and heal our spiritual blindness. So I ask you again, who do you say Jesus is this morning? Was he a prophet, a failed Messiah? Or as some of the religious leaders would say, a blasphemer filled with a demon? Or was he the true Messiah? The king that came not to defeat the Romans, or some earthly enemy, but to fight the real enemy, sin, death, and Satan. Jesus' battle was much bigger than anyone around him realized. When he came into Jerusalem, the beginning of the end of that fight, no one at the time knew exactly what was going on except Jesus. Jesus, the great king, was about to bring his kingdom to bear and on that Palm Sunday, he may have been misunderstood, but he was returning to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem and the temple of God. The glory and expressed image of the invisible God had come to his people. Let us turn now to look at two separate events from this story that show us who Jesus is and was. Not what the crowds or these other groups thought him to be, but what he is revealed to be on the face of Scripture. Our story shows the divinity of Jesus in two primary events. First, his healing of the blind and the lame, and secondly, in the cleansing of the temple. First off, miracles were often used to authenticate a person's ministry and message in both the Old and the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, for example, we read that it's structured around the seven chosen miracles of Jesus. And John's reason for this is simple. He says these were written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's properly basic. However, there's more going on here. When Jesus is exercising demons from people, he is overcoming the kingdom of darkness. He was beginning the defeat of Satan. By teaching the law, think of the Sermon on the Mount, he is showing himself to be the authoritative interpreter of the law. Remember, he was accused as being one of having teaching as an authority, not as one under authority. Even as he's healing here in the temple, he instructs the Pharisees, I can't make them be quiet. Have you not heard? He's teaching them. God was in the temple. In performing these miracles, we see in our narrative today, Jesus is beginning the process of to, rest, to restore creation to its rightful order. These are the first fruits of the restoration when we go back and read our New Testament and see the life of Jesus and see him doing all of this incredible creative work, this is the coming of the kingdom of God and the restoration of all things in Christ. Jesus could do all of this because he was God in the flesh. None other could do this. The second thing I want to draw your attention to in this story is that Jesus shows his divinity in the cleansing of the temple. Jesus rightly assumes the role of the priest and king who guards the worship of the people. While the temple itself required provision for those in particular that had long journeys to buy and sell sacrificial animals. The practice obviously had deteriorated in this time. The text suggests that the buying and selling had become so corrupt that Jesus, Jesus would call those who sold in the temple robbers and thieves. He begins his judgment in the house of God with those who rob and rip off the people. Secondly, in quoting from the prophet Isaiah, he reminds the people that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, for Gentiles too. When Jesus entered the temple, he would have entered first into the court of the Gentiles. And this is presumably where this great selling activity was taking place. What had been set up in the temple to be for prayer, for the nations, for the Gentiles to come in and worship Yahweh. Israel was to be a light to the world. But they were failing until the true light of the world had come in. How could the very temple of God be transgressed in such a way that its purpose thwarted? The Gentiles were to be drawn in. And it was now a marketplace. Jesus brings down his righteous judgment. And we're told in this story that this amazed all who heard and saw it. Why would this have amazed them? Because it was popularly believed that the Messiah would show up and purge the temple of foreigners. Tim Keller, in his book on Jesus the King, puts it this way. He said, Jesus is clearing the temple for the Gentiles, acting as their advocate. What he was doing was subversive. 
Jesus was even challenging the very sacrificial system itself by saying that the Gentiles could go to God directly in prayer. Prayer for the nations. Jesus was challenging things in a way that God and only God could do. He was changing the paradigm because he was God in the flesh. The king had arrived in Zion with praise and adoration, and he took charge of the temple and its worship. Can you imagine anyone else doing this? In the, te- in the past, the temple had only been o- overtaken by the sword. Jesus does it with the word, the sword, from his mouth. And he heals those who come to him. Jesus is shown in our text today to also be truly human. Jesus chooses to enter into Jerusalem as is foretold by prophecy on a donkey, not a great war horse, not a chariot. The majestic horse is for Christ's return. Matthew tells us about Jesus' arrival with a reference to Zechariah's prophecy and that Jesus came humbly. You see, Jesus always took the humble, low road. In trying to capture the humility of our Lord, Paul, in what seems to be almost overwhelmed language, wrote this in Philippians. Though he was in the form of God, he, that is Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Passion Week. This was man... This was God having emptied himself to become a servant to the point of death. Jesus' earthly life is the story of humility and humiliation. We see no greater example of that than in these final days when he was on earth here before the crucifixion. With the word of his mouth, he had called the universe into existence. He breathed into the dust of the earth to make humanity. He commanded the armies of heaven. Yet he came in humility, being led like a lamb to the slaughter. He did not come to crush those that opposed him. But he came on the back of a donkey. The incarnation when the second person of the Blessed Trinity became a man. It becomes the focal point of God's plan of redemption for his people and for creation itself. That thou, my God, should die for me, as the hymn writer wrote. How unbelievable that God should humble himself in the incarnation for you and for me. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience, even being tempted in every manner, just like us, except without sin. 
This God, man, Jesus suffered and died in the place of sinners. This is so extraordinary that the apostle Peter says of it that even angels long to look into this. How unbelievable. Even angels marvel at God's plan of redemption through the incarnation. Who can comprehend it? We have many hymns I could cite this morning. Here's one that we often sing together. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, in his living and his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. It's incredible. I know that word is overused, but the reason people are still writing hymns like this and texts like this about it is it is the most wonderful and glorious thing that God has ever done in creation. The hymn referred to above also mentions that Jesus is the true and better Adam. Paul often referred to Jesus in this way. That sin entered the, man, entered the world through the man, Adam, and so it was a man, in this case Jesus, who would have to overcome sin. I want to read to you some incredible verses from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 45. Thus as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you, this brother's flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of, a, of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mor mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. That's why God came in humility as a man in the incarnation. That's why Jesus entered into judgment, in, excuse me, into Jerusalem during the Passion Week. 
That is why God, the everlasting almighty father, became a man. He did it to win the victory and to give us, that is humanity, the victory through Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? Paul says it is God who gives us, you and me, all who believe the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. That man, Jesus Christ, is now resurrected and ascended and is at the right hand of God the Father where he lives making intercession for us. The one who is God and man, as Paul says. The first fruits of the resurrection of humanity. The second Adam was raised. And those who are his will be raised with him. His resurrection and ascension is our hope. His resurrection and ascension is our sure and definite hope that we will also be raised and ascend to our God and Father. Jesus came to us, to you and I, to his people in Jerusalem, humbly, He entered into our condition, suffered a horrific death, bearing the judgment of God that you and I deserved. Every moment of Jesus' condescension from birth to death was for you and me. And it was a man that went to the cross, but it was also a man who was the Lord God Almighty. The greatest sermon I've ever read on the two natures of Christ is Jonathan Edwards' sermon on the excellencies of Christ. Before we close, I want to share with you and summarize a few points from that sermon. I'll be very, very brief. Edwards said that in Christ we see infinite highness and infinite lowness, infinite justice and infinite grace, Infinite glory and lowest humility. Infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. Deepest reverence toward God and equality with God. Infinite worthiness of good and greatest patience under evil and suffering. An exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth, absolute sovereignty and perfect resolution, self-sufficiency and total reliance upon God the Father. All of these things come together in Christ, who is at one time a lamb led to the slaughter, And at the same time, the conquering lion of Judah. Go to Revelation chapter 5 when John sees the heavenly vision. And is told to look at the throne for the lion of Judah. And he sees a slaughtered lamb. This is our God. Who was divine and human. Who was a lion and a lamb. 
This is the mystery of the one who conquered sin, death, and the grave by laying down his life. The one who had to be truly God and truly man. So what are we to do with this great truth? We worship. We see the depths of Christ's love for us. No matter what our experience of Christ and of this life, we can never and should never doubt his love for us. No one will ever do more for you or love you more than Jesus. I'm reminded, and Luke tells us, that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was awaiting him. He knew it from before the foundation of the world, as the scriptures tell us. And he did it for you and for me. Christ's complete salvation of all things, of creation itself, that's what God and man did in the person Jesus. And it is a salvation that only he could secure for us. So who is Jesus? I leave you with that question this morning. The Bible's answer is clear. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our elder brother if you are in Christ this morning. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who is both the Lord God lifted high and also the Son of David, the Son of God and the Son of Man. That's who Jesus is. Amen.